Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. Of all the causes of human conflict, this has to be one of the most primal. It's so primal that humankind shares it with nearly every other species on Earth. That is, of course, men's fight over women. It all ultimately boils down to evolutionary biology. If I can physically dominate my male competition, then I'll get the woman. That gives me the better chance to mate with her, and so it's my genes that will be passed on to the next generation. Later, of course, but still ancient in origin, concepts like women's purity and honour had to be protected from the enemy's lascivious designs and deep emotions like love have spurred men to fight for women too. But like the rutting of stags, the vicious clashing of great maned lions, or the thunderous fights of silverback gorillas, the quarrels of human men over women don't usually go further than the bar or street brawls we see on late-night caught-on-camera documentaries. History, though, is full of examples where men's brawls over women have gone further. Much further. So far, in fact, that they have thrown nations, empires and millions of people into war. From the legendary fable of Helen of Troy to Native American mourning wars and the irresistible Egyptian queen Cleopatra to the downfall of the mighty Ming dynasty of China. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to Why We Fight. Women. What's your favourite love story? For all the rosy hearts and fluttering butterflies, it's very likely that there is at least some kind of fight, bloodshed or death associated with it. Romeo and Juliet, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, Pocahontas and John Smith. The best love stories, fact or fiction, always contain adversity of some kind. Shakespeare knew it too, of course, writing in Midsummer Night's Dream, the course of true love never did run smooth. Another pair of legend are Paris and Helen whose love certainly didn't run smooth. In fact, their love led, of course, to the indelible Trojan War in Homer's Iliad. The story goes that when Paris became ensnared by Helen's extraordinary beauty, he either abducted her or sparked an affair which led to her running away with him to Troy, the city of which he was a prince. The trouble was, that Helen was already married to Menelaus, the brother of the Greek warlord Agamemnon. Menelaus was, fairly unsurprisingly, incensed. Some jumped-up little Trojan has just run away with your stunning young wife. No, no, that just won't do. Agamemnon, though, was secretly pleased. He had been itching to make war with Troy for years, and this was the perfect excuse. But he too was outraged. As Helen's brother-in-law, this reflected badly on him as well. 
family honour needed to be upheld. And so the clash of heroes began, and names like Achilles, Hector, Odysseus and Aeneas became etched into law. As I said in our first episode on Ego, there's a respectable amount of archaeological evidence that the Trojan War did occur, and that Homer's story drew on at least some real-life events and real-life people. But it doesn't even matter if Homer made the whole thing up, because stories like these reflect back to us our own realities and motivations. For some men, the love of women would drive them to do all and risk all. In Paris's case, it brought about his own death, those of his father and brother, and the utter devastation of his city. And Helen wound up back with Menelaus anyway. A similar story emerges from one of history's other famous couples, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Following the Roman Civil War to avenge Julius Caesar's assassination in 44 BC, Mark Antony formed a triumvirate with Octavian and Lepidus, splitting the Republic between them. Mark Antony took the eastern provinces, including Egypt, and he threw himself into the Hellenistic culture he had always adored. Egypt's queen, Cleopatra, had been a lover of Caesar, and now her allure drew Mark Antony to her too. For her, it made sense to control one of the main power brokers of Rome, but it does appear that their love was real. For him, he found her simply irresistible. But when Mark Antony's wife back in Rome mounted a political challenge to Octavian, Antony had a facepalm moment and had to return to Italy to prove his innocence. His wife conveniently then died with no suspicious activity whatsoever, and Antony married Octavian's sister, Octavia, to cement their alliance. But while it's said that Octavia was possibly even more beautiful than Cleopatra, she was also the quintessential dutiful Roman matron compared to the smoky-eyed, lustrous, seductive Eastern temptress. Antony returned to Egypt and immersed himself back into the heady mix of love, sex and power. But Octavian viewed all this with growing disdain and declared war on Cleopatra, claiming, in propaganda at least, that she was beguiling and corrupting one of Rome's finest. Mark Antony, though, would not abandon his Egyptian love and the two forces met in one of ancient history's great naval engagements, the Battle of Actium in 41 BC. Octavian came out victorious, and later hearing that Cleopatra had committed suicide, Antony fell on his sword. It's possible, though, that the last thing he heard was that the rumour was false, that Cleopatra lived but she too chose suicide when she found out about Antony's death, choosing to be buried with him after holding a poisonous asp to her breast. More than 10,000 people died in the war caused by their love. 
But of course, it's not just love that causes war. As I mentioned earlier, much of men's fights over women are about procreation, ensuring that your genes are passed on to the next generation. And on a tribal or national level, it's a fact that without women, within just a generation or two, your people would cease to exist. And this alone has caused huge conflict. In Roman legend, there exists an event which shocked contemporaries, let alone our modern sensibilities. It's known as the Rape of the Sabine Women. The word rape here is a translation of the Latin raptio, meaning large-scale abduction. So most scholars see the incident as a mass kidnapping rather than sexual assault, but it remains controversial nonetheless. Very early in Rome's existence, its legendary founder Romulus welcomed all kinds of outcasts and bandits to join the young city in order to grow its population and power. But this meant it had a lot of men and not very many women. Romulus knew that if he couldn't attract women to join Rome, his new kingdom would die without the children only they could bring forth. At first he tried alliances and negotiations with neighbouring regions and peoples, but with little success. Getting desperate, he conjured a notorious plan. He invited the people from all the neighbouring towns along with the Sabine people to come and enjoy a series of games the Romans intended to put on in honour of the festival of Neptune Equesta. But when they showed up, began enjoying themselves and let their guard down, the Romans suddenly pounced. They abducted 30 young virgins and one married woman and killed any Sabine men who dared to fight back. It sparked a war in which Rome defeated and took control of most of the neighbouring towns. The women themselves were married off to Roman men. In fact, it was the women, so the legend goes, who finally stopped the war, throwing themselves between their Sabine fathers on one side and their Roman husbands on the other. Another example comes from indigenous American peoples, like the Five Nations Iroquois. Deeply embedded in some Native American cultures was the practice of blood revenge. Essentially, it meant that if one member of a clan killed someone of another, the clan of the victim had the right to kill the assailant. So respected was this societal law that, if practiced correctly, the feud would end with the death of the original assailant. But as we know, even today, murder is often difficult to prove. Who's to say that a particular person did it? What if they claimed innocence? Or what if the death had been an accident, but a bereaved and angry mother just wanted vengeance? Sometimes these events would quickly spiral into what's called a mourning war. Mourning in the sense of mourning a death, not the break of a day. Native American mourning wars were more or less constant in the centuries before and after European colonists arrived on the continent and were fought largely in retaliation for the capture or killing of tribal members by rival groups. The problem was 
that as time went on, it was nearly impossible to prove when a blood feud or mourning war had been satisfied, given the numbers dying in battles. And while the conflicts were relatively low intensity compared to wars in Europe or Asia at the time, they still did result in many deaths. What increasingly developed then was the focus on capturing your enemy's women and children. By doing so, you simultaneously strengthen your own nation while crippling theirs. So, when a full half of the five nations Iroquois died of European diseases in the 1630s, such was the inexplicable carnage that they blamed it on Huron sorcery. The Huron and the Five Nations weren't exactly on speaking terms, so it made sense to the Five Nations that their enemies must be at fault for killing so many of their own. So they went to war, because they wanted the Huron women to take the places of their dead and help replenish their population. Well armed by the Dutch, by 1649 and 50, the Five Nations had butchered the Huron men and taken all the women and children, absorbing them into their own people. The Huron nation was almost entirely destroyed, with only a very small number of survivors fleeing to Montreal. The war had other causes too, like competition for the lucrative fur trade, and that the Huron had insultingly refused to join the Five Nations Confederacy in previous years. But this was a mourning war like no other, and was fought primarily for the women of the Huron nation. There are many other cases of wars being fought over women too. In our Fall of Rome series, we heard about the Western Roman princess Honoria, who wrote a sensational letter to Attila the Hun of all people, asking him to rescue her from her dull marriage to an old senator. Attila promptly arrived on the banks of the Rhine with a colossal army of men armed with horse and bow, forcing the Western Roman Empire to use the last of its strength to beat him back at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451. And the famed Mongol leader Genghis Khan is notorious for his penchant for the captured women of his enemies, making a point of selecting the most desirable for himself and dishing the rest out to his followers. He made several his official wives and concubines, and so prolific was his procreation that an international genetic study in 2003 discovered that 16 million men alive today can trace their ancestry back to Genghis. While it's unlikely that Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan made war specifically for women, the influence of beautiful women on powerful men and their inclusion as spoils of war is undoubted. In one final tale, let's look at how the once mighty Ming dynasty of China was finally brought down by the love one man had for his favourite concubine. Chen Wanwan was deemed one of the eight beauties of China, and her romance with the Ming general Wu Sangui in the 17th century changed the country's history forever. Wu had been given Chen as a gift some years earlier, 
but they quickly fell in love, belying their formal master-concubine relationship. In 1644, at roughly the same time as it happens that the Five Nations were destroying the Huron in North America, the Ming dynasty in China was in grave trouble. A major rebellion led by a man named Li Zicheng had conquered the capital Beijing, overthrown the Ming leadership and proclaimed Li king. The problem for Wu Sangui was that his beloved Chen was in Beijing when it fell. He had Ming forces guarding the Shanghai Pass, one of the major routes south into China across the Great Wall, and was desperate to rescue her from what his nightmares screamed at him each night. But he knew he couldn't do it alone, so he reached out to a Manchurian prince, Dorgon, asking him for an alliance to throw the rebels out of Beijing. But the Manchurians were the very people Wu was supposed to be keeping out of China. Dorgon, of course, happily agreed, and Wu let his Manchurian forces through the Shanghai Pass, something that should have been unthinkable. Together, Dorgon and Wu recaptured Beijing, and Wu breathed tears of relief as he was reunited with Chen. But Dorgon, of course, didn't go meekly back beyond the wall. He took power in Beijing for himself, confirming the fall of the Ming dynasty and the rise of the king. Chen has been called the Chinese Helen of Troy, but should it really be the other way around? The repercussions of Wu's rescue of Chen were so much greater than Menelaus's of Helen. With Troy, a great city fell, but just a city. With the Ming Dynasty, a whole empire changed hands. But then again, one of the survivors of Troy, Aeneas, is said to have been the founder of Rome, according to Greek legend. So I wonder which was more momentous after all. Whatever the case, it's beyond question that men's lust for and love of women has driven empires and nations to war, causing death and misery for countless people over hundreds of years. Indeed, the Trojans, Huron and Ming Chinese met their end because of it. Join us next time as we look at something which has always been a powerful propellant behind why we fight. Revenge. It's one of the main reasons behind World War II, Boudicca's incendiary fight against the Romans in Britain, and the War on Terror. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.